This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. Engaging in queer platonic community can be a really great way of watching people model the types of things that you wish that you felt like you could do, right? Seeing other people who are doing it and surviving it and thriving in it. It's not as if once you've had queer sex with one person, you're now a queer sex expert. Every single person is different. So don't think you're going on a date with any more information about the date's body than they have about yours. You are both brand new to the type of sex that you are going to have if you decide to have sex. Today, I'm in conversation with Casey Tanner, a certified sex therapist and founder and CEO at the expansive group Therapy Practice. You may be familiar with Casey online under the social platform Queer Sex Therapy as well. Casey specializes in gender and sexual diversity, helping partners, individuals, and institutions expand limited mindsets and empower meaningful change around gender and sexuality. And on the show today, we're talking all about queerness, specifically Casey's insights between the intersections of mental health, identity, and sex. Casey shares with Bedside their own story of embracing their sexual identity and what that process looked like for them, as well as advice around navigating sexual evolutions. We get really real about the pressures around sexuality, from sex to dating to gender dysphoria and feeling enough to be part of queer communities. Casey also shares with us their tips on having conversations around sex with partners, especially new partners, and ways we can begin to play with gender expression. Whether you're queer, queer queer-ish, or just curious to learn more, this episode is so expansive and energizing. Without further ado, please welcome Casey Tanner to the Bedside Podcast. Casey, welcome to the Bedside Podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. I just want to give you a super warm welcome, and I know I was kind of letting you know earlier that I've been a longtime admirer of your work, and I'm just so happy to have you on the show today. So before we get into anything, I'd love to just kind of know, how are you right now? I know that like you're the one who usually sits on the other side of the seat asking people that question. So I'm just going to throw that right at you. How are you doing these days? You're just catching me off guard right from the beginning, because once people ask me that question, I'm so used to answering it in such a therapisty way. Because I don't really tell my clients how I'm doing. I normally just say like, I'm good and back to you. But yeah, how am I doing? My partner went out of town this weekend and I'm very attached. And so I'm anxious and sad to be without her, but ready to maybe be a little more productive than I usually am with her here. So mixed emotions. Totally feel you. My partner was like, I'm going to go out of town for the weekend on Monday. And I was like, are you really? (laughs) I was like, I don't know if 
I'm prepared for this. They told you Monday they were going out. That's not enough notice for me. I need like a month notice. I know, seriously. They were like, I'm going to go on a spontaneous Vegas trip with the friend. And I was like, okay, sure, sure, sure. They ended up not going. But I was like, well, yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, trying to play it cool. It's funny because they think pre-pandemic, I was like, whatever, do you? And now, of course, everyone's like a little bit more attached than they want to be, I think. So I'd really love for you to just introduce yourself to everybody during this time. You have an account called Queer Sex Therapy, which is just such an amazing place online. You're the CEO of the Expansive Group, which is a therapy practice. But I'd really love for you, in your own words, to tell us a little bit about who you are and your cultural upbringing and background and really what led you to the work that you do today. Yeah, this is a particularly hard question right now because I'm in the middle of writing a book trying to tell this exact same story. And so it's feeling even more complicated in my head than usual, but I'll give it a go. Yeah. So I was raised extremely privileged, like upper middle class and white. And I was raised in a very fundamentalist evangelical Christian context where it was absolutely not okay to be queer. There was some conversation about sex, but normally it was sex only happens between a man and a woman, you know, when a penis goes inside of a vagina after a marriage ceremony. And that was sort of the definition of sex that I learned and how I understood sex until I was in college at an evangelical Christian college where I had to sign my name on a school contract that said, you know, I won't be gay. I won't engage in premarital sex. I won't drink. I won't dance in private, something like that. And where it all shifted is my mental health was just garbage. I did not want to be alive. I was extraordinarily anxious. I had like three different eating disorders. And I think I was at the definition of rock bottom. And I don't know what other people think about or do at rock bottom, but for me at rock bottom, all I could think about was like, I'm gay, I'm queer, and I need to talk about it. And if I don't talk about it, the rest of my life is going to look like this. And so it was actually after a stay inpatient psychiatric unit that I went home to my therapist and was like, we have got to talk about this. And truly everything changed after that. I was lucky enough to have a therapist that unknown to me was queer and was incredibly sex positive and taught me how to date women, taught me how to have sex with women, was sort of my safe space amongst a bunch of other evangelical people. She sort of became the person I wanted to be when I grew up. So inevitably, after I sort of was further along in my own healing journey, I got my degree as a therapist and then slowly zeroed in on sex therapy and working specifically with trans and queer folks. Amazing story that is. I love that you say, I don't know about anybody else when they hit their rock bottom if they just were faced with their identity. Jokes aside, I love that you say that because I'm sure so many people listening are like, yep, I can relate to that. I would love to know a little bit more because you mentioned it really all started for you with mental health. So I'm curious about the intersection between sex and mental health, because I think a lot of people think of them in two different categories. Like you have your sex and sexuality, and then you have your mental health. And I think like (laughs) we go through a lot of life kind of like compartmentalizing these different sectors of our life. But I'd love to know your perspective on like how that's really all kind of interconnected. Totally. Oh, I could go on about this. Well, I think the thing we forget is like when we have sex, we don't just have sex with our own genitals and somebody else's genitals. Like our bodies are there and our brains are there. And those are the places where our histories are stored. Our trauma is stored. Other relationships are stored. And we can't unplug from that during sex as much as we want to. And anyone who's ever 
tried really hard to have an orgasm, but, you know, was sitting in their head with anxiety thinking, oh my God, I'm taking too long, knows that the way we show up in sex has a lot to do with the ways we show up outside of sex, right? Like often people who worry about taking too long during sex or taking up too much space during sex are people who were socialized generally not to take up too much space, right? Not to be too big, not to have too many needs, not to ask for too much. And so sex there in sex therapy, we actually spend very, very little time talking about sex. We are often talking about these other ways we move through the world, attachment style, trauma, inevitably that pours into the way that somebody is showing up during sex. And I even think that the therapy process can model what good sex looks like because it's consensual, it's paced in a really important and mindful way, there's aftercare, there are boundaries, there's a million ways we can learn about sex and do healing work around sex before we even say the word sex. I really believe that. Mm, I love that so much. And what did your own sex education and modeling of that look like? Because you touched on the evangelical part and like, I'm sure there was probably a lot of purity culture wiggled in there. So how did that play out for you? Yeah. Well, I think back to this very Christian camp I went to and they would do these skits as a way to demonstrate good behavior around this. And I remember that one of the takeaways was as a woman, it's important. I don't wear too much makeup. You know, I don't want to attract non-Christian boys, but definitely wear some makeup because if no Christian girls wear makeup, then the Christian boys are going to date non-Christian women. And that's going to be our fault. This implicit message that I have way too much control over a man's sexuality, that what they do is like intrinsically connected to how I'm acting and how I'm presenting myself. And so I think right off the bat, I learned that I didn't have a sexuality outside of other people. I didn't have a masturbation practice until I was like 23. I didn't orgasm until I was 23 because, well, certainly men weren't making me orgasm. And nobody ever taught me that my sexuality could exist apart from the way that a man was reacting to me and my body. So that's sort of one example of how both in and outside of sex, I was getting this very clear message that who I am is filtered through the lens of how somebody else is perceiving and reacting to me and doesn't exist on its own. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like sexuality as a reactivity instead of like coming out of your own intentionality. Yeah, almost like, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, did it fall? It's like, if I'm sexual, but nobody is turned on by it except for me, like, does it matter? Right. And like, yeah, of course it matters, but nobody told me that. Yeah. I love that. Another thing that I'm curious about, and this is kind of where I'm really excited to get your perspective here with what you talk about online to this day and like where your practice is really oriented. But, you know, I think that a lot of people when they're grappling with their identity, I've felt this so many times before myself, have been like, am I queer enough? What qualifies me to fit in enough here in this space. I'm sure you could tie in your own story here, but you know, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. I labeled this queer imposter syndrome, right? Like all of us, even the queerest of us, even me who is known for being queer wakes up a lot of days wondering if I'm queer enough. You know, the irony of it is wondering if you're queer enough is like one of the telltale signs that you're definitely queer because we're all dealing with it. Yeah. I think it's a bit of a both. And if you're queer, you're queer. There's no threshold you have to reach to be queer. You can know you're queer without ever having queer sex. You can know you're queer without ever going on a queer date. Um, if queerness feels right to you, you're queer. 
Now, there is that this other and that some people, because of the ways that they experience their queerness, have experienced both the joys and the sorrows of queerness in maybe a different way than folks who have never come out. For example, my experience having been partnered with women for the last 10 years is really different from somebody who's never dated a woman. And it's important to acknowledge that difference, to acknowledge that the ways we've moved through the world, they're not the same. Now, does it make me more queer than that person? Absolutely not. It just means that the conversation maybe needs a little more nuance than just, you know, all because not all queer people have the same experience, just like not all straight people have the same experience. Right. I think there's an interesting part, too, where maybe even people who have, are coming to terms um, with their queerness later in life might even feel like they're behind. Totally. Yeah. I see a lot of folks and some of them self-label as late bloomers. Other people don't like that label because it says like there is a right time and a late time. I think especially older millennials and people even a little bit older than that are looking at the ways that Gen Z is able to engage with their sexuality from such a young age and going through a bit of a grieving process, honestly, around having missed out on that and sitting with some insecurity about going on a first date with a gender they're actually attracted to at age 40. What does it mean? And maybe being on a dating app for the first time. So yeah, I think, again, that's another layer of experience. Yeah. Experience is an interesting thing. And I what do you have to say to people who feel like they're in that category of being in that late bloomer spot who are wanting to kind of get started and finally like explore some new territory? When I talk to late bloomers, one of the biggest insecurities I hear is about the sex. I don't know what I'm doing and maybe I'm going on a date with somebody who does. And what I'll say is every single time I have had a new partner, even a partner of the same gender, I feel like I'm starting from scratch. Like every single body is different. And so even having had queer sex for many years now, even in dating my new partner, I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. I was learning all over again. The sex we have is completely different than the sex I had with previous partners. So the first thing that I just highlight is it's not as if once you've had queer sex with one person, you're now a queer sex expert. Every single person is different. So don't think you're going on a date with any more information about the date's body than they have about yours. You are both brand new to the type of sex that you are going to have if you decide to have sex. So that's one thing I'll say. The other thing is don't be afraid to grieve. Grieving is okay. And you do get to sort of hold vigil for the younger part of yourself that felt isolated or that wasn't able to engage in that. That grief is important. And I think if you avoid the grief, then it's hard to fully celebrate what it means for you now that you're here, that you get to do this, that there are so many resources to guide you on your way. So grieve and celebrate wildly and equally, I would say. Ooh, I love that. You kind of just made me think too, if we're going to talk in a quick heteronormative model too, like no sex is the same. When you're with a new partner, you've got to rediscover your bodies and your rhythm all over again. And so it's really no different regardless of what relationship you're in. Yeah. And the best way to get experience with people who have the same genitals as you is to masturbate and to explore your own and to understand your body in that way. You don't need to have had sex with other people to be skilled in that. Oh, I love that. I love that advice. You know, I really am curious about gender dysphoria and how do we really navigate sex if that's our current experience? And maybe 
just for listeners who aren't aware, if you could quickly explain what gender dysphoria is in the first place. Yeah. So gender dysphoria, like most things, looks different for everybody, but sort of generally for folks whose gender does not align with the sex they were assigned at birth, often the experience of incongruence between the way that they see themselves, the way that they understand their gender, and the way that they feel they're being perceived or the way that they see themselves in a mirror. Um, A difference between the way their body looks and the way they want their body to look or the way their body acts in the way that they wish their body would act. So there can be dysphoria around behavior. There can be dysphoria around your name. There can be dysphoria around your appearance. But yeah, when that shows up in sex, which it, you know, for many, many people does, the first thing I'll do is feel back the things we think we have to do during sex that we don't necessarily have to do. So for example, we don't have to be naked during sex. If you have gender dysphoria around a particular part of your body, if it feels good to keep a t-shirt on, if it feels good to wear a pair of underwear that feels really gender euphoric for you, do that. It's okay to have a grounding object, a grounding piece of clothing that you can look at and remind yourself, I am who I am. I don't need anything else to validate that. I think also Any of us who were quote unquote lucky enough to have any sex education were taught, you know, this is how a penis behaves and this is how a vagina slash vulva behaves. And a penis gets erect and it gets inserted into something and a vagina gets wet and something gets inserted inside of it, right? But those can actually feel gendered. They don't have to, but they can feel gendered and they can cause dysphoria. So what if we began to think about treating a penis a little bit more like we would treat a clitoris, right? Like touching it in that way, rubbing, not necessarily having to insert it inside anything or somebody with a vulva puts on a strap on and does get to experience penetrative sex in that way. So It's really de-gendering some of the ways that we've learned how to gender body parts and getting creative in the ways we move our bodies, the sounds that we make. Yeah, peeling back those layers and starting from scratch and asking what feels good for you. Yeah, and it makes me think about gender expression too in the sense of working with masculine and feminine energy in a way. And I remember even for me, I felt so confined in my own coming of age being like, well, I am a female in a feminine body, so I must be feminine at all times. And I remember feeling, you know, when I met a few people who questioned that and could expand what that definition really was and just how you could present, I remember feeling so liberated. I can like think of a few people off the top of my head who I'm like, oh my gosh, you really opened my world to how even just the way I dress and express myself on a given day. Like some days I'm like, I feel girly as fuck. And other days I'm like, put me in the most mask outfit ever. So I kind of want to (laughs) know your thoughts on the flexibility that we have even with gender expression in that way too. Yeah, totally. I mean, gender expression is, is even different from gender, right? Like you can be a woman who's, as you're saying, mask on some days, femme on other days. But I was like, what if I just put on the pinkest, most frilly, dress in the world and just walked around saying like, I am masculine as fuck. That's what I'm into right now. Even decoupling this idea of like what looks mask and what looks femme, that feels good for me. But yeah, I think we get to just make up whatever we want. I think people made up the stuff that we were taught. They straight up made it up. There are no rules. Do what the fuck you want. You know, the same thing that you might put on that feels really androgynous, I might put on and it might feel really feminine. There's no such thing as a feminine shirt and a masculine shirt. So yeah, make it up. 
I love that. I love that. And I like that concept you came up with. It just feels like nuanced in the best way. It's a little stressful because there is something about the guidelines that maybe helps our anxiety a little bit. It can be a little bit stressful to be like, do whatever. But yeah, I'm trying to lean into the best fit. I also want to know a little bit about, and maybe you can kind of explain your own personal evolution with this, but how do we begin to grow and cultivate our own queer identity? Because I think sometimes we're like, oh, this is maybe what it looks like or we get to a certain spot that we feel really comfortable at and then like there's another hump that feels really uncomfortable to go over so maybe we'll stand still so what does evolution like look and feel like in that sense I think because our identities can be really influenced by the people around us by new labels that we find and there are so many different words used to describe the same thing But I think I know what you mean by sometimes you hit a point and then you feel a little bit stalled. Maybe you've come out to people, but the idea of switching the gender you're looking at on a dating app feels really daunting. Or maybe you've switched over the gender, but making that first move and sending a message feels almost impossible. And these are the types of clients I work with all the time. And what I can say is that your internal clock on when you're ready to do the next thing is trustworthy. People do get there and sometimes it takes longer than they'd hoped or planned, but they do get there. I think if you're feeling stalled and you're anxious about how long something is taking you, engaging in queer platonic community can be a really great way of watching people model the types of things that you wish that you felt like you could do, right? Seeing other people who are doing it and surviving it and thriving in it can help you feel like your hand is being held a little bit into that next step. But yeah, I don't know. I'm sort of resistant to the idea of even calling it stalling because I feel like if you've gone to a certain point and the feedback you're getting from your body and your anxiety is, hey, I need to hang out here for a second, then yeah, hang out there for a second. Give yourself that permission. Straight cis people got to do that for many, many years. So we get to do that as long as we want. That's a really great outlook. And I think kind of to riff off that too, I think sometimes we can get so like timeline oriented and just be like, we need to be this way by this time. And you want to evolve at the pace that you choose and really desire to evolve at. But sometimes it's like funny to compare the timelines that you have in mind versus what kind of is really genuinely happening on its own divine timeline. (laughs) Totally. I think so. If I, at age 22, planned out my perfect timeline for my queerness, I would have never designed something as cool as what actually happened. So let that extra, even more cool thing happen than the one that you think is going to. Yeah. Can we talk about what coolness you've created on your own divine timeline? I want to hear about what really inspired you to create your account online and to like really get into the practice. I want to hear what's kind of lighting you up about all of that. God, it was like totally a right place, right time where I was starting to talk about this on Instagram. I was 28. I'd never even had an Instagram before. And it was so clear that people were hungry for this information. Even just the fact that the Instagram handle queer sex therapy was available. It's like, wait a second, no one is talking about this intersection yet. There are a ton of people talking about queerness and a ton of people talking about sex and a ton of people talking about therapy. But what wasn't happening was the conversation at the intersection of those three things. So it was like the door was wide open. And I think I was just the one to walk through it. And then COVID happened. COVID, another version of rock bottom that sort of made us all look in the mirror and say, we're gay 
or buy or pan, or we're not having the sex that we want to, or we're not in the relationship we want to be in. And so queer sex therapy became, I think, one of the most sought out resources because of the identity crisis we were all going through. And I was very much just writing from my own experience. And I think a lot of people were resonating. And at the time I was like, I am not running a group therapy practice. That is way too much work. I've done it in the past. I'm not going to start my own. But then the referrals from Instagram just started piling in like hundreds a month, people looking for therapists. Obviously I couldn't do it all. And yeah, I started hiring therapists to fill that need. And now we're at 20 therapists and growing because more and more people are just realizing how valuable it is to have a space that you can actually bring all parts of you, not having to silo your mental health from your sexuality and sex life. So yeah, I get fired up about saying things that are controversial I get fired up about saying things that aren't being said enough. I get fired up about making people mad. So yeah, that's what drives our team. We don't really put a post up unless we think it'll make at least a couple people mad. I love that. There used to be a part of me that used to be so trepidatious around putting up any sort of controversy and... I adore it now. It is like my favorite part. So I totally resonate with you. Everybody likes you. I think you're doing something wrong. That's my new motto. I like that. I like that so much. I mean, we've just lived in such an era of people pleasing over and over and over. And I'm so tired of it. And I think, honestly, I'm ready for the next chapter. (laughs) No more of that. Yeah, we're done with that. And I think Instagram is a hard place to do that because you make people mad and they're going to tell you. So a lot of it has been training my brain and our team sort of working to develop resilience against people who are just awful. And also realizing like a lot of comments on social media are just people projecting and trying to not take them seriously in a lot of cases. Yeah, I think it's a muscle to train. But when you get there, you're like, this is liberating. I needed that. Totally. I truly don't care anymore. I never thought I could say that. Incredible. (laughs) Okay, so... You know, at Bedside, we're really always talking about good sex, which we believe is really just defined by you at the end of the day. You define what's good. You define what sex is. And we've built that language really off of pretty much queer communities and what they've formerly established because they've been really the ones who've been out there saying, hey, we're really redefining and creating what good sex means and paving that for even people who are in the heteronormative, right? So... To kind of throw that back on you, what does good queer sex mean to you? And even on top of that, like, how do you explore that with your clients? Yeah, I've tried to define queer sex before and I failed in every single way until finally I just like took out a set of markers and just drew a bunch of scribbles on a piece of paper. And I was like, this, this is what it is. Because there is no language. There's like no accurate language to to silo what queer sex is. The things that make queer sex good are, I think, the same things that would make any kind of sex good, which is one or more people that is engaged, that is consenting, that are as present as they can be, and that feel autonomy and empowered in their bodies. I think that is good sex. And good sex, I believe, can happen without even ever taking off your clothes, without ever even touching So yeah, the more I've tried to define it, the more I realize walking down the street can be sex for somebody. So who am I to try to narrow it down? Yeah, (laughs) I love that. 
Someone once told me they were like, one of my favorite things to do is walk down the street and just make eye contact with people and just like really connect. And they were like, it's so stimulating for me. <laughs> it's like, yes. For you. Yeah, do that. It's really just bringing so much excitement to your day. <laughs> okay. So, you know, a lot of people write into us and I'm sure they write into you that they're really struggling to have the sex that they want to be having. Like they're partnered up. Maybe they're dating. It's just what they want is not what they're getting exactly. So how do you think we go about really communicating or receiving the sex that we want to have? Like, where do we begin with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think it starts with a conversation with yourself or your friends or maybe a therapist where you try to put some language to the parts that are working for you and the parts that aren't. You might even create a little Venn diagram for yourself where one side is what's not working. The other is what's working. The middle is maybe things that you feel pretty neutral about. And once you have a list of the things that aren't feeling good, I think it's also worth a second conversation that says, well, what are of these are about me, my own journey, my own relationship to sex, my own shame, my own relationship to my body. And what are things that my partner can maybe be looped in on and perhaps engage in with me differently? And when it comes time for conversations with a partner or partners, I think a lot of people, specifically anyone impacted by misogyny, really worries about hurting people's feelings. Like, I think a lot of us know what we want to look different, but the idea of saying it out loud feels absolutely excruciating because we're all fragile around this topic because we were taught to be fragile. This was just an incredibly fraught topic for all of us growing up. So we anticipate that our partners are going to have some fragility around it, right? And we want to protect them. And then we end up saying nothing. So I always say, you know, instead of defining a successful conversation about sex as one that doesn't evoke any negative feelings, take that off the table. It's going to evoke feelings, right? We're like, we're human. Define success as like going in and making space for those feelings. Like that is what a successful conversation looks like. I'm going to tell you something that isn't working for me or something I'm hoping for. And I'm going to give you space to tell me what it was like to hear me ask for that. And I'm going to tell you, it made me really anxious to ask you for that. And then we're going to sit in the weirdness and the awkwardness of it together. And it is going to feel weird. And maybe we'll acknowledge like, it doesn't feel weird because we're weird. It feels weird because nobody taught us how to do this, right? Like we're actually in this together. And so I think once people learn how to make the shift from thinking that giving feedback about sex is criticism to giving feedback about sex is actually pursuing deeper connection, if a couple can really get on board with that, their sex life transforms. Like I've seen it happen. Do you think those conversations should be had in the bedroom in the moment? Or do you think that they work better in more like neutral territories or you're just like, go for it, whatever just works for you? Yeah, I think some can happen during. I usually veer towards either after sex when you're debriefing or just like snuggling or in a neutral conversation, like even over a random dinner. Things that can happen in the moment, higher, lower, faster, slower, a little to the left, right? Like those things are helpful in the moment, but like, hey, I got this new toy I want to try, or I'm interested in this kind of BDSM. Don't do it in the middle of sex. Research shows that the way that we engage in consent to new things is different when we're in the middle of sex than when we're in neutral territory. So if you really want to have like that informed consensual conversation, better to do it not in the heat of the moment. It's also so vulnerable to receive feedback in the middle of sex, right? It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Of course, saying things like no or stop are really important to be able to do in the middle of sex whenever. But yeah, if you're going to have a larger conversation about shifts you want, 
maybe not in the vulnerability of sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that you said that because I think sometimes people are like, well, maybe my only chance is when it's happening and in the moment and I've got to like figure this out like now because I'm too uncomfortable to have it outside of the confines of that space. So I like that you're like, hey, maybe this isn't our only shot like right here and now. I think to your point earlier, where that comes from is this compartmentalization, right? Like I only think and talk about sex during sex. And when I'm not thinking talk about sex during sex, I'm not doing it at all, right? So actually it's a huge and powerful move to have these conversations outside of sex because it is like that decompartmentalization process that is healthy relationships that are having great sex are those who do not compartmentalize sex. Right. Like sexuality lives outside of the bedroom. Yes. Foreplay happens from the moment you wake up in the morning, basically. Okay. So it's a pandemic. Obviously, we're like on year three. It's been so crazy. Right. (laughs) What do you feel like has been across the board? I know you see all different walks of life. Like, what do you feel like is something that people are always coming to you about? Or what is something that you hear on repeat that you feel has affected the way that we have sex and the way that we date and the way that we're intimate? Is there something that you feel like has radically shifted in that you think we're maneuvering around? I have so many answers to this, but I think obviously we know the Me Too movement really shifted the way that we were thinking about sexuality and consent, but I think there's also been a post-Me Too movement around consent where maybe Me Too put us in a place that was extraordinarily important, but maybe for some people a little bit more black and white than they experience consent. But not instead of going backwards to what we felt about consent pre-Me Too, We're actually moving forwards into a more nuanced conversation around consent where, yes, no means no, and yes means yes, but we're human beings. And so sometimes there are moments that aren't clear and there is body language that isn't always clear and it's never to justify or validate an assault or non-consensual behavior. But it is to say that if you're somebody that asking themselves, you know, do I want to have sex right now? Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes there are days where you're like, absolutely, I'm horny. I want to have sex or absolutely not. But some days, if you're like me, you're like, I guess I could, I could go for it. Maybe I'll like it during, maybe I can get there. And I think some of the Me Too rhetoric didn't leave room for that. And now we're starting to talk about what happens when you're in conversation with yourself and you're not sure about whether or not you want to have sex. How do you have that conversation? How do you make a decision in a way that respects yourself, but also leaves room for the fact that some of us have more responsive desire and aren't turned on out of nowhere? Some of us do need to be touched before we can feel turned on. So I think some of those conversations have been showing up more in the last year. Yeah, that's really interesting, too. And like the pandemic, obviously increasing our stress levels it being a little more challenging to sometimes access the way you formally used to know how to have sex. Like I've been having these conversations a lot where I'm just even like, damn, my language for how I get turned on and how I want to have sex is completely altered because I've had to jump around different hurdles that like maybe formerly weren't there. So I think that's a really interesting point that you have where you're just like, our desire might look different and might need different buttons to be pressed and dialogue to be had. Right. We're not all this. The way we get turned on and make decisions about whether or not we want to have sex is different for everybody. It's not always a resounding, excited, hell yeah. For some people it is, and that's great. For some people it isn't. Does that mean they should never have sex if they like sex? No. So we have to be able to flesh that out. I love that so much. Okay. Tell me about how you 
yourself stay sexually well? I'm always like really curious what people's like own routines are or if you even have a routine or if you're like, eh, I don't ritualize it. (laughs) I'm curious how you stay in your own sexual well-being. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between technology and my sex life. I've been thinking a lot about the relationships between my clients' technology and their sex lives because I think many of us, pandemic and beyond, get into bed and we scroll, that our attention is turned towards our phone. And for people and partners where desire is more responsive and they need things like cuddling or making out to get to the point of desiring sex, what like turning our attention towards our phone does, it sort of eliminates the opportunity to get ourselves connected and turned on. So my partner and I, we both have our phones go on do not disturb fairly early in the evening until the morning. And we do not spend on our time on our phones together. Um, that's a boundary we have. I really think that it helps our sex life. I think we have more sex because of it, more connective sex because of it. And so, yeah, right now that is the massive part of my sexual wellness I would say like, if you'd asked me six months ago, I would have said, if I'm stressed, I definitely use masturbation as a way of relieving stress. But lately I've been exploring more touching myself without a vibrator and that's felt like self-care. So really it's sort of fluid with whatever I'm working on in the moment. Mm, I like the idea of, of seeing where technology plays a role in our intimacy and our connection. I've also been grappling with that lately too. It must be something that everybody's probably feeling on some level right now. Because social media is designed to be addictive, right? Like it is designed to pull us out of our real lives. And of course, our sex life is going to typically suffer because of that. Yeah. My day is like from laptop to phone to Peloton to TV. It's so many screens. And I've just been like trying to find even the tiny moments in between the screen time where I'm just like, where can I just be present and connect to whoever's around me or whatever's around me in a much more intentional way. So love that. Very inspiring. Thank you. Yeah. Working on it. Not perfect, but working on it. Last question for you. What is on your bedside table currently? Oh my God. Weed. I was in Portland recently. So I like stocked up on pre-rolls and so I've got some weed next to my bed. I probably have my vibrator next to my bed. Let's see. I take spiralactone for acne. So that's probably next to my bed. I don't know how much information people normally give to this question, but I like have this embarrassing Gatorade water bottle that makes me look like an athlete, even though I've never played a sport that's on my bedside table. I'd say, yeah, maybe a cat or two. I have so many and one of them's usually on the bedside table. I love that so much. Casey, such a cool conversation with you. Would love to have you back anytime you want. Such a blast. So tell us where we can connect with you online, what we have to look forward to. Yeah, just drop all the details. Okay, so on Instagram and TikTok, I'm at Queer Sex Therapy. Therapy practice is theexpansivegroup.com. I am launching my podcast in a couple of weeks here. So you can follow uh, my podcast at Safe Word Pod on TikTok and Instagram. Oh my gosh, so exciting. Well, thank you so much for joining today. This was such a great combo. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening. Yeah, yeah.